Today's episode of the Strength Talk podcast hosted by UpDoc Media is brought to you by the Arc from Verve. If you want to improve your posture, the Arc has you covered. Developed by a physical therapist, designed by an engineer, made in the USA, the Arc is going to improve your posture and relieve that neck and back pain once and for all. What is up, guys? Welcome to the brand new Strength Doc podcast hosted by UpDoc Media with me, Dr. John Russell. I want to get one thing clear. This is not going to be your average fitness podcast, and I'm sure as hell not your run-of-the-mill strength coach. What's going on, guys? Dr. John Russin back with the Strength Doc Podcast, hosted by UpDoc Media. Today, we have Dr. Joel Seedman with us, who is a PhD researcher out of the University of Georgia, who has an impressively diverse skill set, not only as a coach, but as an academic. His dissertation is really centered around post-activation potentiation for musculature and strength and power, but also some of his work in eccentric isometrics and also looking into barefoot training had me captivated reading his articles over on T Nation. All right, guys, let's get right into it. Here's my interview with Dr. Joel Seedman. What's going on, guys? Dr. John Russin back with the Strength Doc podcast hosted by UpDoc Media. Today, I am joined by the doctor himself, Joel Seedman, with us. What's going on, Joel? John, how you doing, man? Doing awesome. I'm so glad to have you on because I have a lot of personal questions that I want answers to that only a PhD mind could give. <laughs> nice. Well, we'll see if it lives up to uh, the expectations there. <laughs> I'm sure it will. Well, for people that don't know, you're a PhD from University of Georgia, correct? Yes, exactly. Now, now, what brought you into uh, you know training and performance from that academic world originally? Yeah, well, actually, um, the performance thing was more how I came into it. Even from uh, when I did my undergrad and when I did my masters, it was I always knew I wanted to do more of a hands-on approach, and then. I just wanted to learn more and gain more knowledge so that I could apply it to my clients and to my athletes. And then, that, you know, kind of one door led to another and one opportunity led to another. And, um, you know, I had the opportunity to, to pursue a Ph.D. And, and it was tough to kind of pass up. And um, it was at a good school. They had a very good kinesiology department. I knew it was going to be a good fit and, and, you know, kind of went from there. And it took me about four and a half years. If I would have known at the time that uh, – I was going to do more than 10 years of schooling to complete everything. I think I would have thought twice, but, you know, you took it a year at a time, and and it was good. It was awesome. Yeah, and I definitely think those Bulldogs saw something in you, and they're like, man, we got to get this guy on our Ph.D. program. He's the future. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. uh, UGA was was good, but, um, yeah, you know, I learned a lot from pretty much every program that I was in, and UGA brought a different perspective than than when I did my undergrad and master's at uh, at Indiana University. It was a little bit more – Neurophysiology, uh, the neurophysiological mechanisms of resistance training where um, Indiana was a little bit more about the structural kind of physiology of it and, and some of the psychological components of, uh, of kinesiology. So it was good to you know, get a, a mix. Yeah. And when did you figure out in your PhD studies that you wanted to specialize in uh, what ended up being your final dissertation? Yeah, you know the the eccentric isometric thing, which is something that, um, that that's I guess that's what you're probably referring to. Yeah, a exactly, bit. exactly. That's um, that was something that I knew going in that I wanted to do, and actually that's what kind of propelled me and spurred me on to do 
the uh, the PhD because if you look in the literature, there's really at least from what I could find, and I did quite a bit. There's hardly anything on eccentric isometrics. Pretty much any type of um, isometric training you come across is either like an overcoming isometric or a yielding isometric. Um, and uh, you know, as far as the eccentric isometrics, they, there's not too many of those. And then if there is something on eccentric training in particular, it's just dealing with eccentric movement, like slow eccentric super maximal loading. There's rare, rarely, or in, you know, at least as what I know of, none except for uh, my study that actually look at the combination of the two. So I was like, okay, I want to do the research on this because I've been trying some of these things, experimenting with them with clients, and it seems to be pretty uh, awesome in terms of practical hands-on application, and I wanted to see kind of what the, the research uh, showed. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's where success is really bred. When people have something in mind that they want to take down, but they've known what they've wanted to do their entire lives. Uh, I find that with me, you know, I was a strength coach before I went to DPT school, but I knew through that three and a half years of that doctorate that I was going to be back in the gym. I wasn't going to be working in the skilled nursing facility the rest of my life. It was one of those things that any education that I could possibly do to forward my career, I was going to get, but it was all in that end game of getting back where you wanted to be. So I definitely see some similarities there. Uh, for oh, people yeah. that are a little bit more lay, can you define the eccentric isometrics and maybe give an example? Yeah. So an eccentric isometric. So let's just say a normal isometric. And it, when people think of isometric, they typically the one that comes to mind, whether they know it or not, is the overcoming isometric, pushing against an immovable object, pushing against a wall, pushing against a barbell that's loaded with so much weight that you can't move it and just trying to build up tension within the muscle. And then um, you may even have something like a uh, yielding isometric where, you know, you say you're doing a uh, barbell curl and you come halfway down, you know, where there's all that tension at that 90 degree position and you hold it right there. The eccentric isometric um, is a bit different because what you're doing is you're lowering into the fully stretched position. And when I say fully stretched position, it's not overly stretched. And I think that's where some of the problems have um, kind of come up in the past, people trying to go too deep. But let's just say, for example, the squat. So you lower yourself slowly into the bottom of a squat, roughly parallel, maybe a little bit deeper for some, um, but you'll feel where that natural sticking point is. And then once you reach that position, the deepest position your body can naturally achieve while keeping perfect form, then you do an isometric contraction just by simply holding it without letting anything deviate in terms of form and trying to keep things as locked in as possible for roughly three to seven seconds. That That is perfect because I know it is blowing people's minds out there because they've never trained like that. Right. Yeah, no, it's um, – you know, you'll hear about sometimes people saying, oh, hey, I did pause squats or I did pause bench. But the difference is when you do a pause bench, often what you'll see is, okay, we'll go down normal speed and we'll just let it, you know, touch the chest or sit on the chest for a second and then we'll drive it up. So basically what they're doing is taking the momentum out of it, but it's really not an eccentric isometric. Same thing on the squat. They'll go down at a normal speed. They'll hold it for a second to just take out the momentum so that they're not using the elasticity of their muscles to drive the weight up and they'll say, okay, I did a pause squat. But again, that's different because we're really exaggerating that eccentric lengthening, and then we're holding it for at least several seconds to really reinforce that position into the central nervous system. 
Now, are you coming back out after that three to seven seconds and pushing up against uh, the weight with a concentric contraction yes. then? Or is that just yeah, the yeah. end of your set? You're just keeping that stretch on for three to seven and then calling it a set? Yeah, great question. I sometimes forget about the, the concentric portion because I get so caught up in the, in the eccentric. And the concentric is, is just as important. And in fact, when you do a proper eccentric isometric, it actually uh, potentiates your nervous system. And with that said, you can actually achieve a very explosive and powerful concentric contraction. So you actually want to take advantage of that and really achieve, a, you know, like I said, a powerful concentric movement and really fire up the muscles as powerfully as you can while still staying in control. Oh, yeah, for sure. I've used both of those techniques in my training and the training of my clients with really great success. But early on in my career, I think instinctively, I was just going to, like you said, you know, taking away the momentum of the movement just to make sure that your form and your technique was pristine and you could really get that explosive component in back into that eccentric. But, you know, even in the last 18 months or so, I've seen that, you know, reading your research and also some of the content that you've been throwing out there. Uh, that those eccentrics and then also getting that three to seven seconds makes a huge difference when you're looking at not only hypertrophy but also mobility training. Exactly, exactly. That's that's one of the things that um, kind of, um, I guess, gave me uh, a little bit of initiative to look at it is because it was like, all right, we have these different forms of training, but is there one that can kind of um, target different aspects of performance from mobility to strength to hypertrophy to muscle function and even to uh, different aspects of symmetrical loading. So one of the things that I did with my research was I wanted to see, okay, how do eccentric isometrics um, affect performance just from an, an acute standpoint? And one of the things that we found is that it improved symmetrical loading and it improved um, stability. Now, we didn't look at mobility. That's the one thing I was going to be um, – you know, kind of testing the functional movement screen. Um, and I, and as I look back, I wish I would have done that. But uh, with the eccentric isometrics, one of the reasons why you go down slow and why you hold that position is because you're trying to get all this feedback and sensory information from your muscles because they, they do give you a lot of information, the muscles, and people don't realize that. So when you go slow, you can use that and you can fine-tune your body's position. So as you're going down to a squat and you're doing it slowly, you can feel if there's deviations in form or if there's you know, movement deficiencies or if something's caving in or if you're favoring one side, if you go slow like that, you can tune into it and make the necessary adjustments. And then, like I said, you hold it at the bottom to reinforce that improved technique. Man, you nailed it too. You know, the slower, the more controlled that you move, you can really tap into that mind-muscle connection. Exactly. Uh, on com, a couple months back, I had a guest post that was absolutely kick-ass from Ian Padron, a young strength coach in Seattle, and he spoke to that mind-muscle connection. And that article got a lot of mixed review because many people said that, hey, that doesn't exist. You can't potentiate uh, force with a mind-muscle connection. But just from what I've seen as a coach and as a practitioner, I think that's false. I think you can absolutely tap into it, both physiologically but also mentally as well. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I think, um, you know, there's there's that aspect. And th- this is one reason why I didn't want to stay in academia because I do see some faults in it, um, especially with some of the research, you know, 
you have people, you have a research study that comes out and like you said, it may say, well, you can't, you know, do anything with the muscle mind connection. There's no such thing as, you know, being able to potentiate your nervous system by doing that. But then you have real world experience and hands on application and great strength coaches like yourself saying, well, Hey, I've been doing it for a while and it seems to be getting results. So what's the difference here? But, you know, so in, in reality, I'm, more inclined to listen to somebody like you or somebody who's got the hands-on experience. Um, and it's great to have the research to back it up. But if the research contradicts what the practical application is saying, I'm probably more inclined to uh, go on the practical application side of things as long as it's, you know, not just a, a you know, an isolated incident of one strength coach saying it. And, and, you know, as long as they have a reputable, uh, you know, reputation like you do. So it's, uh, but yeah, and no, I think that a muscle mind connection is huge being able to create those neural connections with the appropriate muscles. Cause, uh, in the end, you know, you got to make sure you're targeting the muscles that you're intending to hit. And if you're not, and if you're putting the stress on other muscles or on your tendons or ligaments or joints, you're obviously not doing what you want to. So, yeah, and the research is hard to get through too. Uh, sometimes you have both sides of outliers. You have the guys that don't care what the practical application is. It's all by the peer-reviewed research. And then you have the other side of just meatheads going nuts and just staking claim to what they're doing in the gym even though it might be wrong for 99% of the people. And that's one of the biggest disconnects that I see in the fitness industry but also in the health and wellness industries is that sometimes uh, the best practices out there, so the really innovative minds, the strength coaches that are getting results, the therapists that are doing magic hands in the clinic, they're not necessarily doing the things that are backed by science yet. You know, usually it takes, you know, five, ten years to come out with a, a body of research that actually shows, yes, these methods are actually producing results and the efficacy is great. But sometimes uh, there are people out there that are staking claim to things that aren't really uh, reliable nor are going to produce results in the future. So you have to have a fine comb when you go through the research, but also you have to seek out those coaches that really have that reputable uh, experience in the gym that are producing results, not only for one person, but throughout their career for a decade or so. Exactly. I fully, fully agree with that. You got to be able to kind of know how to differentiate between the two and kind of comb through it. Like you said, it's interesting, you know, all the time, uh, you know, it's few and far between that I'll actually release my references on some of my bigger articles, either on teenage and breaking muscle on my own site, just because people go right to the references. So they won't read your content. They won't read your purpose, but they'll go to the references and try to defute your references as opposed to actually reading the content. And that's one of the things that's really pissed me off in the last couple of years is uh, you could write something that is super smart. It's been producing results for thousands of people. But because of one of the references that you cited in your article, they try to defute that. <laughs> Have you yeah. seen that too? I've definitely seen that, and I think you're smart uh, not uh, giving away too many of the references, both for that from that standpoint, and also you know you're the one that did the research, so why give away all the all the secrets? But yeah, I mean, like you said, I think you got those people out there that uh, they got a little bit of that whatever if you want to call it a jealous streak, or they're just always playing devil's advocate. So whatever you say, no matter how much sense it makes, they want to try to find whatever they can to refute it, even if there's only one study out of fifty. 
you know, they're going to say, Hey, well, you know, well, this study says that you're wrong and that you, you should do it this way. So yeah, no, it's, uh, I think that's, I think that's going to be uh, pretty common in, in this industry. You got the, you know, some of those strength coaches and, and, you know, lifters who just, they're very stubborn and they don't want to hear from other people. And it's uh, yeah, I, I can believe that for sure. After after going about ten straight articles on T Nation without releasing any references, finally I broke down. My last article uh, was on the four most commonly injured sites for lifters, and it really took a lot of background work on my end just to try to take down every single research study that is showing all demographics of lifters and where people are getting hurt. And I think we cited like thirteen, fourteen references. It wasn't even all of them. It was just all the notable ones, and. I remember just getting email after email a couple weeks ago, people asking about the references and not my article. And (laughs) I couldn't believe it. I was like, man, this is the last time I do this. Uh, I'm glad to hear this, too, because I've actually uh, been debating about the whole reference thing as well with some of my future articles. You just nipped that in the bud right there. uh, Dilemma (laughs) solved on that end. You know, every once in a while, so we'll throw out some articles on drjohnrussin.com and uh, people like yourself that are truly academics, you know, have the PhD behind their name. I respect when somebody like yourself or a PhD cites references. But, you know, if you're just a run of the mill personal trainer that's trained, you know, six people in their career, you know, PubMed doesn't do much for me. You know, your opinion on what matters in the research doesn't do much for me looking at the efficacy of what you're coming out with in your content. So I think there's a time and a place for references, but also just coming down to the fact that you need to be producing results no matter who writes the articles, who writes the programs, or what kind of background research you're doing with it. Yeah, and no, I agree. And, and, you know, this is one thing I saw in uh, academia and research is that a lot of studies are pretty poorly done, and it's kind of uh, – amazing to see what people can get away with and fortunately um now that i look back at it my committee members were extremely anal about certain things and they made sure they were you know and it drove me nuts at the time but now looking back like i said in retrospect i'm glad they did that because um there's just so many studies out there and i think that's where you get some of these uh conflicting opinions and this conflicting information is, is you know you have research studies that are improperly designed or they have biases involved and, you know, the researcher wants to prove one thing and, you know, there's not enough um, outside researchers looking in to make sure that the the legitimacy of the study is there. And so, you know, there's all these different reasons, but uh, I'm sure you see them. Oh, oh yeah. And, and it gets me even more because both my parents were actually university professors throwing out research. So this is very ironic that I go down this path not citing <laughs> research studies in my articles because they spent their entire lives you know, in academia, which is super crazy. And I don't think a lot of people realize that. But um, uh, well, Tell your parents to uh, maybe skip this podcast if they listen to them. No, I'm just kidding. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think they would agree, though. I think they would agree. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. I want to jump back and ask you a little bit more, more about the eccentric isometrics and more mm-hmm. pertaining to mobility and recovery because I know uh, using those techniques can definitely enhance those things. And I've been using them with great success, but I want to hear from the horse's mouth, the guy that actually did his dissertation on this. Yeah, so um, as far as mobility goes, um, you know, like I said, I – originally wanted to use the FMS to kind of assess mobility and also use um, different measurements to look at joint angles and everything. And 
some of my uh, committee members saw or they thought there was too much uh, error and, and, you know, kind of opinion involved with the way that the measurements are done. I can kind of understand that. But just from my own practical experience and using them with athletes and my clients pretty much daily, um, I can say without a doubt that it's the single most effective tool that I use to train mobility. In fact, I don't really even use too many other mobility uh, training protocols with my clients. Um, for example, if somebody's having trouble with squat depth, we will work on – what we'll do is we'll regress to an easier squat and then we'll work on mobility, working on using eccentric isometrics and gradually things just start to open up and, and loosen up. Um, you know, and I could, I could have them do all these different mobility exercises. I could have them do 10 different corrective movements. Um, but at the end of the day, I've had the most success just taking the movement pattern back to a very basic movement pattern. So, for example, instead of doing a barbell squat, I may just have them do a dumbbell squat where they're hanging the weight between their legs. It just is a little bit easier in practice. And, you know, I'll have them close their eyes and I'll have them go down slowly and feel for those cues that I've been telling them. And I'll give them a few cues at a time as they go down. And, you know, every few seconds I'll say, okay, see if you can get another inch without letting your spine lose that position that you're in or without letting anything deviate or without losing the form that you have. And uh, usually within a few minutes, um, their mobility is pretty much where it needs to be. You know, that's interesting too because I think that that practical application might speak volumes on top of the research in this particular realm because I've seen the same thing using strategic you know, isometrics, strategic loaded stretches inside of a traditional strength training program that has yielded far better results than any mobility-esque uh, sequence. You know, obviously I'm a physical therapist, uh, I'm ART practitioner, soft tissue mobilizer, but I've really seen my best results with all of my clients doing things that are more intelligently designed in the strength program as opposed to the axillary stuff that happens before, after, or even intraset. Yeah, no, that's, that's a great point. And I think, you know, when it gets down to it, it's, um, you know, I like to just break things down into basic movement patterns. And if you can do the basic movement patterns and, and kind of isolate those and, and work on them and improve them, then, um, you know, when you do a squat, doesn't, you know, if you have, whether it's tight hip flexors or whether it's, you know, tight adductors, if you get your form locked in on something like a squat or a lunge or an RDL, chances are you're going to be correcting and addressing all those different uh, imbalances and areas of tightness and limitations and restrictions all with one movement because it's just a basic movement pattern that everyone needs to be doing rather than, you know, just isolating a specific uh, muscle or doing a small corrective exercise. So, but, you know, there's obviously different ways to, to you know, skin a cat, but this is, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's good to hear that you use it as well. Yeah, and it's stuff that's not sexy, so people aren't, like, captivated by, oh, my God, let's uh, do a loaded stretch for 10 seconds at an end of a set. You know, it's, they think it's too simple to work until it actually produces results for them. Right, but right. It's one of those things that I think a lot of people have to experience and almost be uh, force-fed some of these things because there's training and then there's physiotherapy and corrective exercise. And I think it's two different things right now. And in all actuality, the best coaches, the best therapists in the world, they're doing both of those things seamlessly and people don't know what the hell's hitting them. They're just going into training and they're getting ultimate results, but they're getting both of those niches into one. Oh, yeah. 
No, I, I totally agree. You know, it's uh, being able to kind of combine the different methods rather than just throwing out certain ones or saying, oh, this one's no good or, you know, we're just going to do this way, but being able to combine them in a strategic fashion, which I know that's what you do and that's why you've been able to, to take the, the fitness industry by storm these last, uh, you know, 12, 18 months, whatever it's been since you've kind of become mainstream in this industry. It's been, uh, yeah, no, I, and I think that's why you, you've taken off and been so successful because you know how to use these uh, different methods and strategically place them together and combine them to, to get results. And I think that's, uh, that's huge. Well, that's one of the biggest things is if you can take something from every different demographic of fitness, in my, in my opinion, you know, if you can take the best from bodybuilding, the best from powerlifting, the best from athletic performance, the best from physical therapy, the best from yoga, and kind of combine them and synergize them, you can create a special program that is not only great on paper, but can be great for the, the custom individual as well. And it takes a lot for people to get out of their comfort zone. So most people will pick one real niche in the fitness industry and they'll maximize it. There's nothing wrong with that. But I think some of the best coaches are able to live each niche, you know, year by year, you know, going from powerlifting to bodybuilding to physical therapy and ultimately get that experience where they can create something truly special in their program design, but also the way that they coach that program. Yeah, no, you're 100% right on with that. That's, uh, I think that's one of the biggest things is not just sticking with one form of training, but kind of experimenting with the different um, kind of aspects of, of fitness, whether it was you know bodybuilding or Olympic lifting or powerlifting, and knowing how to mesh and fuse it together. Just like you said, I think that's that's critical. And I think that's the future of fitness, and I think that's why you have things like you know CrossFit gaining so much popularity, whether or not they've actually implemented it right. But the, the kind of the the idea um, of using all these different methods to achieve a goal, I think that's I think that's huge. Yeah, that was a novel idea that is going to be popular for the next 50 years because they are really bringing everything together and synergizing. But uh, something that you touched on before that I definitely want to bring back up is the key for maximizing somebody's uh, functional movement patterns. So making sure that technical movement patterns, uh, you know, I have five foundational patterns that I currently work on with the squat, the hip hinge the push, the pull from the upper extremities, and then the loaded carry, you know, maximizing technique in those five things. After you do that, you can really do some cool things after that. But if you have faulty mechanics in those top five movement patterns, there's not a whole lot you can do. And I think that's why the popularity of like these kind of BS mobility drills and, you know, the 35 minute dynamic warm up have gained popularity in our industry is because people don't truly know how to move through the movement patterns that are important and they want to make it up somewhere else, whether that be, you know, an hour and 50 minute mobility drill after your lift or anything like that yeah no i i think you yeah exactly and uh like you said you gotta nail and work on those basic movement patterns then if you still have some deficiencies then use you know a few of those corrective movements or you know maybe do some soft tissue work but doing the reverse and just hey you know we got some movement issues here well let's just do all these corrective movements and we'll worry about the you know, general movement patterns and those basic foundational movements later after we've corrected all that, you know, they're going to be sitting there for, a, you know, a year or two and still without 
very measurable results until they really start hitting those movement patterns. And like I said, then you can start working in some of those other soft tissue modalities and then, you know, the other correctives. But uh, like you said, you got those movement patterns and, and you got to nail it. But um, the other thing I wanted to say was that the, um, like the eccentric isometrics and nailing the movement patterns, um, I think one reason why people try and find different ways around it is because doing eccentric isometrics and doing the movement patterns correctly, it requires a lot of cognitive focus oh, and yeah. mental engagement. And, you know, when you do, you know, soft tissue work or just a simple corrective exercise, a lot of that can kind of go on autopilot and just kind of, you know, work a, a muscle, whether it's just the, the structural aspect, kind of working out some of those uh, areas of tightness or the fascia. But when you do a movement pattern and you do have a, a movement deficiency, you really have to think your way through it. And it's very uh, mentally challenging as well as physically challenging. A lot of people, they just, you know, unless they're coached properly how to do that, they just don't want to put that effort into it. Yeah, it's the autopilot mode that I see in my office and my gym every single day. It's, uh, you know, they've been in physical therapy before and, oh, yeah, I've done that movement before, that corrective exercise. Oh, you have? Okay, let's do it and I'm going to coach you up on this and I'm going to spend 20 minutes making sure this one corrective movement is proper and all of a sudden their heart rate's at 165. They have sweat coming down their face and they don't know what hit them. Because they're actually executing it in the proper way, and it, like you said, it's that it's that connection between you know your neurological system, but also concentrating on what you're doing, and not just going through the motions. You know, nothing was ever perfected going through the motions on anything, whether it be fitness or anything else in life. And I think just that concentration factor, whether you're you know squatting with 500 pounds on your back or you're doing a sideline uh, arm sweep, you know, for your thoracic spine. You know, it has to be there, and that's part of the part of the special thing about training is you have to have that concentration. I think it really forges that because it, in order to get results, you have to be on game every single second. Exactly, that's uh, that's that's well put. I just had a um, powerlifter I worked with uh, the other day. It was his first uh, session with me, and he was telling me his different numbers and telling me, "Hey, you know, I got some hip and knee pain." And he says, "But you know, I got a pretty good squat." So, and I was like, "Okay, well, let's check it out." <laughs> well, he definitely had some issues with the squat pattern, and uh, we just took it down to, to body weight, and then eventually a forty-five pound dumbbell just hanging between his legs, and he was dying, and he was he was smoked with just two sets of four repetitions doing the the eccentric isometrics like we talked about, and and uh, not only did it you know clear up a lot of those issues, but he was uh, <laughs> pretty much incapacitated for a few days. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, like you said, that's that's definitely uh, that's key there for sure. Yeah, to maximize any performance, you kind of have to be tapping into that sympathetic ner nervous system. You can't just be kind of chilling down at a heart rate of sixty and your blood pressure down. You have to be challenged to the point where you have to adapt. And whether that be an unloaded movement or a maximally loaded movement, it's all the same. Movement is movement. And that's that's another disconnect that I definitely see. But it's something that if you can tap into as a coach or an, as an athlete, it's almost instantaneous, the results that you can see from it. Exactly. And kind of going hand in hand with that, it kind of reminded me, you mentioned about, you know, with me on autopilot and just not really cognitively being engaged with the movement, which so many people do. Um, when I did the, my research study, we found that um, one of the groups, they just were allowed to do the movement patterns on their own without doing eccentric isometrics and just kind of do however they felt like you know they normally did it. Um, they pretty much go on autopilot, so to speak, and they were fairly experienced lifters. Well, after we tested them and retested them, we found that their 
stability was actually worse and their symmetrical loading was worse, meaning they were favoring one side more than the other after they finished their squat because they were allowed to kind of do whatever felt natural and uh, feed into those um, kind of imbalances and, and dysfunctional movements and it just made it worse. Yeah, people are going to hit a default pattern, and the key is that default pattern has to be acceptable. And I think if you can make it acceptable from training and just like retraining that neurological system, the neuromuscular connection, uh, that's where I think success is bred. But uh, switching gears a little bit here, you wrote another notable article back on T Nation, I think about a year ago, on barefoot training. And I was saying to you before we got on air here that it was one of the smartest articles that I've ever read on barefoot training and that it probably went over the head of 99% of people and just the depth you were able to gain from it. But it's one of the things that I see – you know, really on a weekly basis, I see a lot of triathletes up here, a lot of ma- uh, marathoners up in Madison, Wisconsin, having the Ironman up here. And barefoot training is one of those things that everyone aspires to, but really nobody's ever going to get to. And that's a sad thing because I think a uh, majority of people I see have the foot structure, the anthropometrics to actually move into barefoot training, but they just don't have the tools nor um, the information to move into that type of training. So I want you to shed some light on not only barefoot training, but also how to progress from you know a four, 14 millimeter drop motion control shoe down into something that's actually going to challenge uh, the stability muscles of your feet. Yeah, no, the um, yeah the the, the barefoot uh, training thing that that article got um, uh, a lot of. Um, buzz both the most kind of uh both sides positive and negative yet some people saying that hey you know the the barefoot uh thing it's dead and then some people saying hey this made a lot of sense um and i think you know with the barefoot um kind of trend and the minimalist trend what happened was the science showed that barefoot movement or movement that is done with minimalist type shoes um it's really the most efficient and it's the most biomechanically sound movement when it's done appropriately. So what you had happen was people decided, hey, well, you know, the science says this, so let's start wearing barefoot shoes. And, you know, when I go out for my runs and, you know, when I go in the park and or do my agility work, I'm going to just do everything barefoot or, or wear my five-fingered shoes or whatever you want to wear. And um, everyone was uh, not prepared. They didn't prepare their bodies ahead of time. And uh, they were not ready to jump into that. They didn't do the physical preparation. And, you know, the way society is, everyone wears shoes um, everyone has movement deficiencies. We all sit so much, um, and it, that really kind of uh, leads to even worse movement patterns and even further weakness in the feet and ankles, and they just don't fire like they should. And you throw somebody into a situation where they're running several miles a day, a few times a week, you know, on cement with barefoot shoes, well, you know, it's just a disaster waiting to happen. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and I'm sure you've seen that, especially with, you know, all your clients with physical therapy. But, uh, you know, I think for me, it's just really when I get a new client or a new athlete, one of the first things I do is assess their feet and ankles and just see whether or not they're firing. And honestly, you can pretty much tell right away as soon as they take off their shoes or, or their socks, it's pretty obvious if they have that, you know, pronation or if their toes are crammed together or if they don't know how to, you know, get that good three points of contact. So I'll just start them off with basic, um, you know, activation exercises, simple single leg stand. And if they can do that, we'll do it with their eyes closed. And if they can do that, we'll do it on a softer surface like turf. And if they can do that, then we'll throw in some 
partner uh, perturbations and just kind of manually tapping them while they're holding that. But I don't, you know, it doesn't have to be that complex or complicated. They just have to start activating the feet and ankles and just waking up those muscles that have been pretty much dormant um, since they started wearing shoes when they were probably one years old. So. Yeah, I'll take you back, you know, 2011, 2012, there I was in a practice out in San Diego, uh, orthopedic physical therapy, we saw a lot of professional athletes, uh, sports performance clients, and I remember there was a sale at the major running shoe store locally, and all the vibrant five fingers were like 50% off, right? And I remember like the two months after that sale went, I mean, I, I even went out and bought a pair of those. I was like, all right, cool. You know, 50% off, whatever. I saw so many clients coming in on Monday morning with these traumatic injuries of their lower legs. Like I've never seen. And I just couldn't put two and two together for a long time. So I was seeing people come in, you know, experienced runners coming in with, you know, flexor digitorum longus, just like nearly torn to shreds, you know, dorsiflexion just gone, you know, ankles the size of elephants. I'm like, what the hell is going on? So they were going, these were marathon runners, and they were going from a motion control shoe right down to a five finger and going and running a 19 miler the next day. And that's just not how it's designed to be. You know, like like you uh, alluded to, our culture in our society wants it yesterday. They want results now. They want to make change now. And there's not a whole lot that are patient and able to actually do the work that it takes to move into something like going from a 14 millimeter drop to a six millimeter drop, let alone a zero. So, exactly. I mean, we were busy as hell those couple months, but uh, <laughs> these were some brutal injuries that I was seeing. You know, yeah. some of them uh, didn't get back to running from you know even my care, which is which is hard to believe, and it was it was tough to stomach, but. Yeah. I remember no, just being like, damn you, Vibram. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, and that's, the, and that's the funny thing. You know, five, six years ago, um, you know, even really up, I would say until about two or three years ago, you'd see a lot of people wearing Vibram five-finger shoes and, and all these different minimalist shoes. And it was kind of the trendy thing almost, it, even though they're kind of uh, hideous to look at, some of them. It was starting to become uh, fairly popular, you know, in, in gyms. You'd see them, people running, and uh, – now you rarely see it, and it's like I said. I think it's one of those things where it's like people tried it and, and they said, "Hey, it didn't work so much for that." Well, let's just go back to normal shoes, or, or even worse, they'd come out, you know, with the maximalist shoes, which blows my mind um, how the fitness industry could go from one extreme to the other, especially when they almost had it right with the minimalist shoes. Um, <laughs> so it's. That's funny. Yeah. I mean, I, I go back to uh, one of my most devoted clients up here in Madison. Uh, she's an Ironman athlete, unbelievable competitor. And she's in this motion control shoe the first time she, she sees me. She's at 12 millimeters, and this thing is stiff as a rock. And she's competing at a pretty high level. And as soon as we go out to do some gross movement, as soon as we re educate the hip hinge and re educate the squat pattern, it didn't feel good anymore for her to be in those 12 millimeter shoes. As soon as she went barefoot, all of a sudden, everything just linked up neuromuscularly. When she was able to root into the ground better, she was able to have better uh, knee tracking over her fifth digit, things along those lines. And that really shows that that's where you need to be. If you're able to perform gross movement patterns better in bare feet than you are in your running shoes, 
you might rethink the running shoe that you're using when you're going to go in your Ironman. Yeah, no, exactly. It's, and it's, I mean, you know, I think people forget that activation starts with the feet and the toes and the ankles. That's where you have your points of contact from. And, and really, you got all these muscles and muscle spindles and sensory connections down there. And if you get good innervation, it sends signaling all the way up the kinetic chain, even as high up as, you know, the shoulders and cervical spine area. But if you're losing those connections, it's having a negative impact all the way up, and you're not getting the, the same type of activation or uh, movement efficiency you would get. So, yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's huge, being able to activate the feet and ankles. That's probably one of the first things that, uh, that I look at now with my athletes and clients, and, and surprisingly, just about everyone that I see um, before they start training has movement deficiencies and, and um, muscle deficiencies in their feet and ankles. Yeah, be, before anyone leaves my office to go and train, they need to have two requisites. They need to be able to pack the shoulders, so having that synergistic spiral effect through the upper extremities where they can really create a functional torque so they can keep stable through uh, that upper quarter, but they also need to do that exact same thing down at the feet. So if they can't root into the ground and they can't really get torque through uh, their lateral chain and their glutes and their biceps femoris, all the way down into the peroneal group, if they can't activate those things, then they're probably not ready to do some of these movements. So re-educating those, uh, that's the best way that I've been able to bulletproof bodies, you know, the last couple of years. And it's a simple thing. It seems like, duh, you know, this is what we have to do to move forward. But as soon as people get that, not only do they feel better, but their numbers go up as well if they're strength athletes. Oh yeah, exactly. That's I think that's one of the hardest things for, um, especially with some of the higher level athletes. At first, you know, you tell them, "Hey, we got to work on your foot mechanics and and you know your ankle strength," and then we have them squat with proper form, and you know their form, their their numbers have to go down considerably. But then all of a sudden, because they're actually able to build strength every time rather than just demonstrating it, you know, all of a sudden a month later they're doing more weight than they were before we actually fixed their movement patterns, but they're doing it with the right technique and stimulating the muscles and, and taking the stress off the connective tissue. So, you know, it's, it's a little bit of an ego thing there, I think, as well. Oh, yeah. I'm going to steal that from you. Uh, you Build strength instead of demonstrate it. Oh, that's a good one. That's actually a uh, – I can't take credit for it. I was about to let it slide, but it's <laughs> uh, Arthur Jones, which uh, surprisingly he was a – If you, I'm not sure if you're familiar with him, but he was a high-intensity guy. He's actually the father of high-intensity training, which as you know, they're not really into movement patterns. It's more about just crushing the muscle, but I like the quote nonetheless. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's money. That's awesome. Nice. Now, uh, I'm going to do a shameless plug for you and me both here. Uh, we worked on a project together a couple months back and you were writing an article for men's fitness and the topic of the article was post-activation potentiation. I threw a little bit in there with the quotes and that, but uh, give everybody a little bit of sneak peek because I think this podcast is going to be coming out just about time that that men's fitness article is going to hit the newsstand. Yeah, it's, I think it should be coming out in the, uh, I believe the October issue, but, uh, yeah, no, you gave me some awesome quotes for that. And <laughs> uh, the whole idea of post-activation potentiation, which really all that is, um, it just means that you do some type of intense muscular contraction, usually some type of voluntary muscular contraction with some form of intense physical activity. And, uh, prior or 
preceding contractions basically are more powerful afterwards because you've hyperactivated your nervous system um, and you've woken up some of those high threshold motor units that you normally wouldn't have been able to get to. So that's one of the things that I talk about in the article, some of the, the quotes that I got from you basically how to use that um, technique in terms of you know maybe doing some type of heavy movement before you do some type of explosive movement and how that heavy movement can wake up your nervous system and actually cause you to move faster or, or jump higher. Um, and up until, you know, a few years ago, um, everyone used to think, hey, you know, uh, heavy strength training will slow you down. Well, actually, the research is, is showing the exact opposite with this potentiation training, showing that those, uh, those heavy sets, as long as they're done properly and with the right form and appropriate movement patterns, that's really what causes your body to kind of uh, dig deep into those survival fibers and wake them up for the um, you know subsequent explosive movements, whatever it's going to be. So that's one of the things that I go over in the article, and, and your quotes pretty much back up um, just about everything in there. And it, it's, it's uh, your quotes were perfect for that, and I think <laughs> the, uh, the uh, audience is going to find that pretty useful, both from a uh, practical application as well as some some cool uh, scientific stuff. So yeah, it should be out in October. Oh, right on. And, you know, from your research reviews, uh, you know, you have that three-part series up on your website, which we'll link to. But, you know, just from that, I remember reading that about a year ago, and I took two different things from that. You can maximally load at higher uh, intensities by using quick explosive motions uh, beforehand, so really just priming the neuromuscular system, but then... Secondly, you can also supra-maximal load a set really to get more explosive after. And, you know, from my experience as a coach, I've really just tried to do both of those in uh, the same ramp-up scheme. I don't know if this is scientifically right like we were talking about, but I've seen amazing results from it. And uh, I wrote an article about a year back on T Nation about you know, the most intelligent way to warm up. Obviously, that wasn't my title, but uh, nonetheless, it was about just using uh, a periodized program in your ramp-up scheme. So going from having an inverse relationship from the amount of reps that you're using in your ramp-up sets to the amount of weight that you're using. So as your weights go up, your reps go down, and you actually hit a single that's going to be a super maximal load of your actual working weights. And I remember thinking when I wrote that article that, duh, you know, everyone already does this. I can't believe I'm writing this and actually getting paid to write this article. And <laughs> after a bunch of people read it and, you know, the thing pretty much went viral, I was like, damn, I guess people don't warm up like this. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it goes back to that bro science, you know, just kind of throwing a couple plates on, throwing a couple more plates on, just getting the groove going. I think a lot of people are doing that and they're actually hindering their performances, not only in strength, but also in power movements. Oh, yeah. No, actually, that uh, the article that you're just uh, alluding to, the one that you wrote, um, that, that's what caused me to reach out to you regarding uh, getting some quotes from you for that potentiation article because I was like, okay, this is perfect. This, uh, you know, uh, John knows exactly what I'm talking about here. He can give me the, the perfect quotes that I need to back up the scientific literature. And, and like you said, too, it's not just one method for causing that potentiation. You can use those lighter loads, and as long as you're trying to uh, – move them fast and, and um, really move it explosively, it's still going to tap in those fast rich fibers and cause that potentiation, which the, the article talks about and get some awesome quotes from you there. But yeah, no, you hit it on the head. 
<laughs> you know, it was one of those things that uh, it was almost stu- too stupid to write, but I'm glad I wrote it. And looking back at it, um, it's now that if I coach a client and then we use a different ramp-up scheme than the one that was written in that article, they're like, oh, hold on a second. Wait, you wrote you wrote this in uh, T Nation last year. Why aren't we doing this? And in all yeah. actuality, uh, you know, a ramp-up scheme can be just as unique as any strength or power scheme. So yeah. there's definitely a lot of uh, ways that you can go from a programming standpoint just to get the maximal uh, – the maximal performance when you do get to your working sets. Exactly. Exactly. That's, that's for sure. And, uh, yeah, no, it's, uh, again, that's why I reached out to you regarding that. Uh, and it's, you know, I think the more intelligent, uh, strength coaches and those that have looked at the research and understand the science, they, they know how to apply that, but it doesn't seem like there's too many of them out there that actually do it. So it's, it's good to kind of point out what we think is the obvious sometimes, because for some it's, it's not so obvious. <laughs> for sure. You know, one last question for you. Uh, you know, you've done a lot with overhead pressing in your career, and you have a you know expertise over shoulder health and how overhead pressing affects that health. So, what are your recommendations for you know the ninety nine percenters out there, the people that aren't professional athletes, aren't going to be in the CrossFit Games, but are just looking for general health and maybe looking a little bit better naked? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, well, the overhead press, um, it's one that you kind of get a, a different slew of opinions in terms of how to perform it. And um, if I just had to kind of pinpoint one thing that holds people back from a, a proper overhead press, it's that T-spine mobility. Oh, yeah. Um, being able to get their thoracic spine in the proper position and being able to extend that top third of their upper torso slightly back without letting their low back and lumbar spine uh, excessively arch and still being able to maintain that good tight core and those transverse abs and being able to suck your stomach in. So, um, yeah, just being able to kind of tilt that top third of their uh, upper torso back as they're approaching the bottom position. And one technique I really like to use with that, and it's, it's simple, you don't even have to uh, show it, I can just talk it about talk about it, um, is just kneeling on a bench and performing any type of overhead press, whether it's a barbell or a dumbbell press or a bottoms up press but as soon as you go into that kneeling position and your feet aren't in contact with the floor they're just hanging there it kind of forces you to uh do it with the right technique because if if you don't get enough thoracic extension you actually feel like you're about to face plant forward and if you lean back from your upper back and lose core tightness you feel like you're going to fall back so it just kind of provides that nice uh sensory feedback and that, that good um cueing to the lifter of where to find that right balance in terms of how much extension so that they can get good shoulder packing at the bottom. Yeah, I, I saw that video on uh, bodybuilding.com, correct? Yes, yes. Yeah, that was a good one. And anytime that you can take joints out of the equation, it makes it nth degree harder. Uh, you know, it's simple. You know, if you want to do shoulder raises, uh, standing is far easier than if you're going to sit your ass down. And just to your point, if you go kneeling on a bench, you know, it's going to be an ego test because the weights that you're able to produce uh, force overhead and actually go rep after rep is going to be far less than if you're in that standing position. And that just uh, really shows that the neuromuscular system is just so powerful. The way that we can tension down that synergistic spiral effect, the way that we can really utilize the fascial layers to create torque to work from. And um, yeah, it would definitely humble some people if they try that exercise. 
Yeah, and I guess the other uh, key uh, kind of hints and tips I give someone if they're having uh, issues with their shoulders is, is check out your articles uh, <laughs> on Roosens, Dr. John Roosens, because you, you go into some pretty uh, in-depth stuff on, on the shoulders and the uh, you know centration of the shoulder joint, and it's awesome. So you get pretty in-depth on that. So um, the cue and tip I gave was kind of a, a simple, uh, you know, sort of a quick fix yours is like man we can get really get to the root of the issue here and, and problem solved like none other for the shoulder so that would be my uh, recommendation for the listening audience out there i would have to second that recommendation obviously uh, nice. now joel where where can we find more about you your websites your social media that kind of stuff yeah just go to uh advanced human com. um that's that's my website um and uh pretty much everything's on there i got a youtube channel um, my Facebook is just Joel Seedman and, um, LinkedIn I, right now I'm, I'm working on getting a Twitter thing going. My, my social media thing is, is, uh, going a, a little slower. I've never been <laughs> a social media thing. I know you're, you've got that up and running like crazy. So, um, it's something that I, I definitely got to kind of get going a bit more, but uh, yeah, I don't understand actually how you're able to, to do as much as you do with, uh, <laughs> with, with all the content you're able to put out there. It's, uh, I'm, I'm barely able to do uh, half of it and you're, uh, going uh light years ahead you're, you're really uh kind of blowing it out of the water so it's it's good motivation for me but yeah advancedhumanperformance.com is is the uh the website all right perfect and what's next for you what's what's the next thing on the docket that's coming out or things that you're doing in uh your gym what's what's next yeah um you know the we talked about the research and just to kind of take that back a second um <laughs> I want uh, what I'm. My goal is to actually. I'm. I'm in the process, um, preliminary process of, of working on a book, but um, it's it's going to be probably another six months to a year. I'm taking a lot of the research that I did and just some of the the you know experience um, that I've had over the years and just trying to compile it into uh, a larger book. I may split it up a little bit, but uh, that's something that I'm I'm working on and trying to get that done. So. Um, it's a little bit of a slower process, you know, because trying to get the articles, trying to train clients, trying to, you know, keep up with everything. But, uh, yeah, so the, a book, uh, uh, that's something that I'm, I'm working on and, uh, hopefully that'll, you know, happen, uh, sooner than, than later as far as finishing it. I'm kind of in the middle of it. So, oh, I know that's a process, but I'll be the first one to buy a copy because, uh, <laughs> everything that you're coming out with is definitely something I need to be up with, uh, for my training personally and also my clients training so i'm excited to hear that uh it's definitely a different uh a different take on putting out content or research you know it's moving into that different sector but it'll be definitely something cool to to go down and do what an interview it was with dr joel seedman thank you so much joel and i know you guys got a bunch out of this interview like joel said visit his website, but also visit both of our pages over on T Nation to look at any articles that we've written in the past and also some future articles that we have in the plans. For more on post-activation potentiation, be sure to get over to Joel's website where he has that three-part series where he does a legit, where he does a legit literature review, really showing everything that you can use, not only in the gym, but with the programming of your clients. Until next time, this is Dr. John Russin with Strength Talk Podcast, hosted by UpDoc Media.